Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. And uh, if you pay attention to the news, it's kind of hard to avoid Medicare. Uh, this morning, the news was that uh, physicians are pressuring Congress not to cut their pay while Congress is pressuring physicians uh, to improve the quality of care that they deliver to Medicare patients. Uh, recently, there was also a report that as a, the result of a computer glitch, Medicare sent out about $50 million worth of checks to about uh, a total of $50 million to about 200,000 seniors, uh, and then announced that it was not going to ask those seniors to return the money. Now, if you're like me, uh, this reminded you, as many things do in life, of an episode of The Simpsons, where Lisa Simpson asked her grandfather, well, Grandpa, didn't you wonder why you were getting checks in the mail for doing nothing? And Grandpa Simpson replied, well, I figured the Democrats were back in power. <laughs> But they'd have to rewrite that scene today because, in fact, those checks were sent out under the Medicare Prescription Drug Benefit, which is a Republican program uh, enacted by a Republican Congress and implemented by a Republican administration. Um, and I think that's really one of the key insights about a book that we're here to discuss today, and that is that when it comes to Medicare, there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, that book is titled Medicare Meets Mephistopheles, and is written by Cato's adjunct scholar, David Hyman, who's a professor of law and medicine at the University of Illinois. Now, I'd like to give uh, just a couple of reasons why I think this book is going to make an important contribution to uh, the debate over Medicare and over health care more broadly in the U.S. The first is that this book, as the cover suggests, is entertaining. It's probably the first book on Medicare that ever put the devil on the cover. It's probably, it may not be the first to include political cartoons. It's probably the first book on Medicare that, to include a picture of a stripper. And uh, the first... With her clothes on. With her clothes on. Um, and it's also uh, the first to suggest, tongue-in-cheek, of course, that Medicare uh, is a pro may be a program with sinister origins. Second, because the book devotes a chapter to each of the seven deadly sins and how Medicare promotes each of those sins, I think it's going to provide a handy guide, a handy shorthand for, for uh, members of Congress and their staff to categorize lobbying meetings that they're going to receive uh, or that they have to sit through in Medicare. You can imagine schedulers telling a congressman, well, congressman, this afternoon you have uh, a meeting with a Chapter 3, three Chapter 4s, and a Chapter 10. And you can also even imagine members of Congress trying to sneak out the window when they hear they have a, 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 a Chapter 9 on their schedule. Uh, third, and most importantly, is that amid uh, all the uh, entertainment is a serious critique of Medicare, uh, which is uh, one of the largest health care programs uh, in, in the world. Now, before I give away any more about the book, I want to invite David Hyman up to speak about it. And after uh, he tells us uh, more about the book, we're going to hear uh, comments from uh, two leading health policy scholars. The first will be Ted Marmer, who's a professor of public policy and management beg your pardon? Oh, is Robin going first? My, my apologies. Uh, first will be uh, Robin Wilson, a professor at the University of Maryland and a visiting professor of law at Washington and Lee University, where she teaches courses on health care law and policy. And Ted Marmer uh, will be following her. Uh, Ted Marmer is a professor of public policy and management and of political science at Yale University and uh, the author of The Politics of Medicare, which I think is in its second edition right now. Okay. Now, after, after that, uh, we'll give uh, Professor Hyman another ch uh, chance to respond, uh, if he wants to, to any of those comments. And we'll open up uh, uh, to questions from the audience. And afterward, I hope you all join us upstairs for a luncheon in our uh, winter garden. 
um, and uh, where you'll have a, an opportunity to uh, purchase and uh, uh, get a signed copy of Medicare Meets Mephistopheles. So with that, I'll turn it over to David. Thank you, Michael. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for coming, uh, and particularly thank the two commentators, Ted Marmer on my right and Robin Wilson on my left, uh, for being good sports and agreeing to comment on the book. Um, Michael asked me to hold up the book so we could get pictures of me with it. Um, and um, one of my co-authors actually emailed me and said, did you pose for the devil on the front? Uh, and I said, I thought if I had my back to the camera, no one would know. Uh, obviously, my co-authors know me pretty well. Um, look, health policy is serious business, uh, Medicare policy doubly so. And the shelves of the libraries are full of dusty, weighty, heavily footnoted tomes, white papers, congressional hearings, reports, and journal articles examining every aspect of the program and proposing all sorts of micro and macro reforms. The tone of these works is invariably serious and sober and weighty. You can almost see the deeply furrowed brows of deep thinkers contemplating the eternal verities, fiscal and otherwise, raised by the Medicare program. And I'm a professor, so I've written my share of those heavily footnoted deep think pieces. This is not one of those works. <laughs> Instead, this book offers a satirical examination of the Medicare program on the principle that if you actually understand Medicare, you will either have to laugh or cry. And as a physician, I can assure you that laughter is much better for you. When the crown jewel of Lyndon Johnson's great society, born of high hopes and the best of intentions, turns out to operate a lot like an intergenerational pyramid scheme, when the program is facing a complete fiscal meltdown, but the debate is over whether we should add 40 billion, 100 billion, or 150 billion in additional spending per year to pay for pharmaceuticals. When modest efforts in any congressional session to restrain the rate of growth in any part of the program trigger frantic bipartisan efforts in the next congressional session to avert the cuts, including something Michael mentioned, the current maneuvering over the proposed 5% cut in physician fee scheduled to take effect in the new year, well, what else is there to do but laugh? You just couldn't make this stuff up. As the epigram to the book states, quoting the Roman poet Juvenal, in such circumstances, it is difficult not to write satire. Now, the facts about Medicare are pretty uncontroversial. The program buys health care for 42 million beneficiaries at a current cost of about $340 billion per year. In exchange for that staggering sum of money, we get thoroughly mediocre care, with every conceivable permutation of overuse, underuse, misuse, and out-and-out -out error. Depending on the study, Medicare beneficiaries get somewhere between 50% and 75% of recommended care. The only good news is that the quality of care they receive isn't any worse than that received by the rest of the population, but it isn't any better either. Now, what about the financing of the program? The latest report from the Medicare's trustees offers a blunt statement that Part A, the hospitalization benefit, can be brought into actuarial balance over the next 75 years, not indefinitely, just over the next 75 years, with an immediate 121% increase in program income, that means more taxes, or an immediate 51% reduction in program outlays, that means cuts in benefits. 
or some combination of the two, with any delay requiring adjustments of far greater magnitude. The same report notes that Part B and Part D, the physician services and pharmaceutical coverage of Medicare, are adequately financed only because the law automatically shunts general tax revenues into the program to pay for those expenses. Now, if you express in present value terms the current obligations of the Medicare program, that is the amount that it's promised to deliver, and compare it to the amount that it's projected to receive in taxes, there's a $70 trillion deficit. Okay? Now, those figures are from the 2006 trustees report, but if you tweak the dates and the numbers a little bit, you can get the same results from almost any trustees report from not quite the origin of the program, but certainly the last decade. Let me summarize. We're spending a lot of money we don't have to buy something whose quality isn't all that good. When you find yourself in a hole, it's generally a good idea to stop digging. But a lot of Medicare policy seems to be based on the principle that if we just dig harder, the program will take care of and the problem will take care of itself. How can you possibly explain such behavior among people who assuredly know better? Now, this book, remember, <laughs> offers a satirical response, explaining that the fault lies not in our stars and not in ourselves, but in the devil. The basic thesis of the book, modeled on C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, is that you can best understand Medicare by seeing it as a demonic plot. The program corrupts everyone and everything it comes in contact with and incorporates all seven of the deadly sins, avarice, gluttony, envy, sloth, lust, anger, and vanity, while simultaneously persuading everyone that it incorporates none of them. The book is structured as a memo from a junior underling demon in the Department of Illness and Satanic Services, or DIS, to Satan, reporting on the status of their plans. Individual chapters are devoted to each of the deadly sins and the impact of the program on the distinctively American virtues of thrift and truth-telling. At the end, there is a chapter, again in the demonic voice, about exorcism, followed by an epilogue. The book offers an accessible introduction to the history, structure, and actual performance of the Medicare program, and a roadmap to past and likely future battles. Along the way, as Michael has mentioned, you'll find cartoons and pictures of various historical documents and events that were significant in the history of Medicare, including a stripper uh, who uh, was ended up in the tidal basin under circumstances that you'll have to read the book if you don't remember them. In the time that remains, I'm going to sketch out the impact of each of the seven deadly sins and touch briefly on the other chapters. The first sin is avarice, which affects the 1.3 million providers who sell their goods and services to the program and ceaselessly agitate for more money from the federal government. Worse still, the program pays providers based, not, based on what they do, procedures performed, number of patients seen, time spent, and not on what they accomplish, that is, whether they're actually providing high-quality care and whether their patients are actually getting better. Indeed, in Medicare, providers can actually by, be financially better off by providing lower-quality care, a peculiar incentive, to say the least. The second sin is gluttony, which affects program beneficiaries. 
consider the 1988 Catastrophic Coverage Act, which was quickly repealed in the face of overwhelming opposition from beneficiaries. As Andrea Mitchell observed in a news broadcast on NBC, quote, the elderly are not against the new benefits, unlimited hospital care, new at-home benefits, prescription drug coverage. 1988, we had prescription drug coverage. They just don't want to pay for them. Now, that's gluttony, plain and simple. Over time, the program has become a reverse Robin Hood scheme. That is, it takes from the working and middle class, lower middle class, and gives to the upper middle class and the wealthy. Medicare forces single working mothers with no health insurance to pay for the health care of wealthy retirees in Florida and Arizona. In all fairness, even the devil's kind of embarrassed about that one. The third sin is envy. The program has done a reasonably good job of creating envy along geographic lines. Medicare spends massively different amounts per beneficiary depending on the state and county in which care is provided. And these differences are the results of differences in the treatments that are delivered and the cost of production. Dr. Jack Wenberg of Dartmouth Medical School likes to note that we could buy every single Medicare beneficiary in Florida who agreed to receive their health care in Minnesota a fully loaded top-of-the-line Lexus. And the program would come out ahead financially. And the patient would come out ahead in terms of the quality of care they receive. The fourth sin is sloth, which affects legislators and program administrators. Legislators understand the problems of the Medicare program, but they prefer tinkering with its day-to-day operational details rather than fixing the far harder long-term problems. And those problems get worse the more they delay. Program administrators are slothful as well in terms of addressing the quality problems that I've outlined previously. By design and temperament, they have few tools and little will to leverage Medicare's purchasing power to improve things. And in the rare instances when they try to do it, they get hammered by the elected representatives. So sloth becomes their dominant strategy. The fifth sin is lust. Medicare induces lust for program expansion and political power among members of the Democratic Party. Polling has consistently demonstrated that voters trust the Democrats more than the Republicans when it comes to Medicare, and so the Democrats accordingly use the program as a bludgeon at every conceivable turn, regardless of how big or small the differences are between the parties, the bipartisanship of the reform efforts, and the financial straits the program is in. The book provides numerous examples of this. The sixth sin is anger, which the program induces in members of the Republican Party. Diehard conservatives hate Medicare because it's a large command and control program with serious administrative pathologies and a Pac-Man-like appetite for an ever-increasing share of federal tax revenues. They're even angrier because they can't do anything about it without being savaged by their political opponents. Now, as the book notes, there's actually some evidence that the party switched sins in the debate over the prescription drug benefit with Republicans lusting to use prescription coverage to achieve political advantage, and Democrats extremely angry about that. The seventh sin is vanity, which affects health policy analysts. Health policy analysts know all of the problems with Medicare, but almost without exception, they hail the virtues of the program and excuse its dysfunctions, reasoning that a program with a rotten benefit package mediocre quality and unsustainable financial commitments is better than no program at all. 
Saul Bellow neatly explained the ability of smart people to rationalize such behavior. A great deal of intelligence can be invested in ignorance when the need for illusion is deep. Now, I don't think I have time to talk about the chapters on thrift and truth-telling, but I think it's fair to say Benjamin Franklin would be appalled by the fiscal hole we've dug ourselves, and Washington would be appalled that we can't actually tell much of the truth about the long-term prospects of Medicare. Right now, in the words of a former undersecretary of the Treasury, the federal government is, quote, a giant insurance company with a sideline business in national defense and homeland security. (laughs) It's hard to think that that was what the founders had in mind. Now, the chapter on exorcism outlines a number of threats to the demonic plans. Uh, The devil's careful not to pick favorites uh, or least favorites, and the book doesn't suggest that any of these are net or complete losses for the devil because all policy reforms are mixed. And we can talk about those during the Q&A if people would like to. A point that wasn't emphasized enough in the book, but I do want to flag here, is the irony that Medicare was seen by its backers as a step towards universal coverage. But the programs actually made it significantly harder to achieve that objective for two reasons. First of all, like all government spending programs, Medicare creates a cohort of special interests whose primary goal is protecting what they already have. The demise of the Clinton plan was assured once Medicare beneficiaries figured out they would come out net losers from universal coverage. They preferred a world in which they had coverage and other people didn't to a world in which everybody had coverage, but their coverage wasn't as good as it was currently. The problem is compounded by the fact that Medicare has shown how expensive it can be to provide universal coverage. We learned our lesson the hard way with Medicare, and there's understandably considerable reluctance to double our bets or double down on the problem of the uninsured. As Uwe Reinhardt once observed, we have a problem with the uninsured in the United States, not because we're unusually callous toward the poor, but because our health system, including Medicare, has priced the, the price tag of kindness out of the nation's ability to pay for it. Now, for obvious reasons, I spent a lot of time focusing on the negatives about Medicare, and the book and my remarks have omitted or glossed over uh, a lot of the good things the program is responsible for, and any balanced policy assessment needs to take those into consideration. Um, That's not this book. Okay. Um, Now, let me sort of wrap it up. Obviously, Medicare is not a demonic plot. Okay. Just let me say that again. Medicare is not a demonic plot. I can now see, we've got that clear. You know, I can see Joe Biden waving this book at me at some point. <laughs> Professor, no. Uh, I mean, it's found, in all fairness, its founders viewed themselves as being on the side of the angels. And there's absolutely no reason to doubt their sincerity, even though there's plenty of reason to question the consequences of their actions. The book is written the way that it is because satire provides an accessible tool for explaining the Medicare program to the general public and surfacing the program's very real problems in a less confrontational way. At least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Medicare is not a sacred intergenerational trust. It's just another government program, and it ought to be evaluated in that light. Now, Stein's law is that if something can't go on forever, it will stop. Medicare's trajectory can't go on forever, and it will have to stop. The only question is how and when. There are better and worse ways to handle this transition to a program that we can actually afford. Time is short. The longer we delay, the worse our predicament. 
switching the focus from Satan to saints. When it comes to fixing Medicare, we can no longer afford the approach of St. Augustine, who prayed for chastity and continence, but not yet. Thank you very much. David is offering to let me flash his book at you a little bit more. Um, I'm told that I can move this up, but maybe I don't need to do that, or move it down, rather. Um, You know, it's a real delight to be here. I want to thank David Bowes, Michael Cannon, and Cato for including me on the panel today. Uh, It's a delight to be reacting to and celebrating David's new book, Uh, But clearly I add some diversity to this panel, not just because I'm younger and prettier, for example, than David and Ted and Michael, uh, but because I'm here to drag down the average knowledge level about this very complex program. What I want to share with you today is what I would tell my 97-year-old grandmother about Medicare. Um, David's deliciously funny book argues that Medicare in many ways corrupts our most basic impulses, grabbing for more than our fair share, for example, avarice and other things. I'm going to argue today that Medicare, for me, falls short on an even more basic measure, common sense. The program as it is conducted now just doesn't make any sense. David does a terrific job highlighting some of the pathologies that contribute to this lack of common sense in the program, such as how it magnifies the natural human impulse to consume, consume, consume. Now, it's true that Medicare permits beneficiaries to do just that to some extent, but it's possible to overstate that impulse as well. I doubt that many people in this room would, for example, accept a free appendectomy after the panel if I offered you one. Healthcare services have a wonderful way of being self-limited like this. Uh, But I am sure that if I told you that GW was offering a free liposuction at 2 p.m., there would be a mass exodus from the room, even as engaging and as insightful as David's book uh, is. So Medicare responds to what's really classic moral hazard in all insurance programs, the same way that any private insurer like Blue Cross Blue Shield does. It does it by excluding coverage for things like cosmetic services. So the real impulse that David is critiquing here is the desire that each of us has for the system to go to the mat for us or for our loved ones when we are critically ill. Now, whether we cast this as gluttony, we cast it as self-preservation, or we cast it as the need to be reassured that in a crisis someone is there working hard for us, it is a basic human impulse that I suspect never will and perhaps shouldn't go away. The deeper pathology, I suppose, that David highlights throughout his book is the reverse Robin Hood characteristic that he's already described. Now, as you know, historically, there's been no means test for Medicare until the Medicare Modernization Act in 2003. But I didn't have to actually practice health law or go to law school to figure this out. When I was a student at the University of Virginia, I had the great fortune of living in a guest cottage at the Swank Country Club Farmington. In exchange for the cottage, my job was to walk to the end of my landlady's driveway, it was a very long driveway, to pick up her mail, which every day was usually a half-inch thick stack of bond checks, stock dividends, and yes, Medicare explanations of benefits. And I would often think, what in the world are we doing paying for Mrs. M's health care? That's why I see the limited means testing that was introduced with the Medicare Modernization Act as a welcome development, although I don't think that it goes far enough. 
Now, while David is right to point out the inequities that result when we pay for the wealthiest Americans' health care, he doesn't give Congress enough credit, I don't think, for what we do and what they have done on the other end of the scale for our lowest and some of our poorest, uh, lowest income and poorest seniors. Now, he does note that the very poor seniors have been able to qualify as dual eligibles, receiving both Medicare and Medicaid. But those seniors who are in that netherland just above the uh, very, very poor, the not quite poor enough folks, like my grandmother, also need assistance with co-pays, deductibles, and other uncovered expenses. The Medicaid income uh, cutoff, you may know, is a whopping $712 a month. Uh, clearly, a person who makes $715 a month isn't that much better off than a person who makes $700. And Congress recognized this when it created the Qualified Medical Beneficiary, or QUIMBY, and Supplemental Low-Income Medicare Beneficiary, SLIMBY, Medicare Savings Programs nearly 20 years ago. QUIMBY was created in 88, SLIMBY in 90. Now, these are means-tested Medicare add-ons that act, as I've told my grandmother, as a Vulcan mind meld between Medicare and Medicaid. They respond to the hardships faced by those seniors who fall into that not-quite-poor-enough netherland, assisting them with their out-of-pocket expenses, although these seniors do not, and this is important, receive the same kind of Cadillac benefits, for example, that some Medicaid beneficiaries do receive. Um, and Congress's new prescription drug benefit also recognizes and gives an extra helping hand to low-income seniors, as David does point out in the book. Now, unfortunately, many seniors see the Quimby Slimby programs as a handout. They see it this way because Congress placed responsibility for the Medicare savings programs with state welfare agencies and Medicaid offices, corroding the basic and cherished character of Medicare as something that is earned over a lifetime by paying into it, an essential characteristic of social insurance programs, as Professor Marmer notes in his work. Now, I don't know about your grandma, but my granny mom is not accepting a handout from anyone, and that has very much hurt these programs. In typical fashion, Congress also made the Medicare savings programs so complicated that state caseworkers don't understand them and often don't even know that they exist. Seniors struggle to complete the complex paperwork that is required uh, in order to become enrolled, and all of this gives us predictably dismal enrollment. Thirty-three percent of eligible low-income seniors actually get Quimby, and 13 percent are enrolled in Slimby. Now, the complexity of the, mar of the Medicare program, even outside things like Quimby and Slimby, just can't be overstated. A cursory walk through the Medicare Medicaid guide uh, makes even the most highly skilled professional, someone armed with multiple degrees and years of higher education, just <coughs> shudder. Consider CCH's guide to Medicare and Medicaid. Its current rules include six volumes and 47 additional pamphlets. All of that is supplemented by 45 volumes containing older transmittals as well as regulatory decisions and updates. For the lawyers in the room, this is essentially the most complicated case reporter ever created. It combines rules, cases, transmittals, and a number of other publications, including pamphlets sent to providers and revisions to the manuals for intermediaries, carriers, and other Medicare contractors. Now, the publishers themselves were not unaware of the massive information that they've collected in the CCH guide. In its How to Use This Guide section, CCH suggests a six-step process for attacking any research question. 
First, you need to locate the correct topical index. There are three. Then you find the topic and the corresponding paragraph number in the index. There are approximately 260,000. You read the manual on the topic and the, uh, the material on the topic in the original guide. Then you go to the correct index in the current developments portion of the guide. You again locate that topic, look up the corresponding cor uh, paragraph numbers, read them, and then you synthesize all of that. Now, just out of curiosity, I looked at a topic that would probably interest uh, many physicians, physician reimbursement. Physician reimbursement appears in the general section, Payment to Providers, which takes up 140 pages. I then went to the Current Development Guide, where I found that the category Physician Reimbursement didn't exist. But there were 68 entries under the topic Provider Reimbursement. Needless to say, I didn't read all of them. In fact, I didn't read any of them. Now, it seems to me that Medicare is one of the few things in life where a person legitimately needs a dummy's guide. Unlike the wealth of topics, for example, where we already have dummies guides, say, for example, eBay for dummies, or perhaps even sex for dummies. So why don't we have a dummies guide for Medicare? We don't have one because no one can possibly afford to get wrong even a single one of Medicare and Medicaid's thousands upon thousands of rules. Professor Hyman includes in his book a sidebar about a famous fraud and abuse case in which Dr. Kryzak, who was a doddering psychiatrist and his Czechoslovakian wife, overbilled Medicare by $245,000, and the government sought $81 million in, e in redress. Now, you ask, how is that even possible? It's possible because the Federal False Claims Act allows for treble damages and civil money penalties ranging from $5,500 to $11,000 for each fraudulent claim in these types of cases. With Kryzak, the government sought three times its actual damages of $245,000 and then $10,000 a pop for each of the 8,000-plus claims that Kryzak and his Czechoslovakian wife had filed. Now, as if astronomical civil penalties aren't enough, providers face an even more crippling penalty, which is exclusion from the program. Over 15 different violations can result in exclusion, ranging from outright fraud, where we would want an exclusion, to things like providing care that is subsequently deemed not to be medically necessary. Exclusion is the economic death penalty for most facilities and providers who simply can't make it without participating in Medicare. But it's even worse than that. Medicare will make sure that exclusion will be the economic death penalty for you. It does so by providing, first, that no federal health care program or federally funded state health care program, i.e. Medicaid, can pay for services furnished by an excluded provider even at the beneficiary's request. Okay, that makes sense. That's what exclusion means. But it also says that hospitals that give services to beneficiaries admitted by an excluded provider can receive no payment for the services that the hospital renders. And even past that and beyond that, any person who retains an ownership interest in or is employed by an excluded entity or contracts with them, simply contracts with them, is subject to civil penalties if they knew or had reason to know of the exclusion. Now, for the football fans in the room, this is equivalent to what to happen to SMU in the 1980s when it was popped for booster violations. SMU received the NCAA's death penalty sanction and had to shut down its program for two years. SMU then went from being the biggest, baddest football team around to being an also-ran. I hope there are no SMU fans presently in the room. But as a, a University of Florida president um, said at the time, it's like what happened after we dropped the bomb in World War II. 
But the hammer the government wields extends just beyond extreme financial penalties. While I was teaching at the University of South Carolina, the government investigated McLeod Hospital in Florence, South Carolina. Now, the buzz from Florence was that the FBI and the Department of Justice backed up a semi-truck to the hospital to take away provider uh, contracts and patient records. FBI agents and Department of Justice agents also went in, some people might say stormed in, to the hospital with flak jackets and 45s exposed and started segregating the staff into separate rooms lest they talk to one another to compare their stories. Now, I had a number of clients in practice that were hospital administrators. These guys are desk jockeys. I hope there are no hospital administrators in the room today. But they do not pose a real threat to FBI agents. Neither can I imagine the most devoted orderly rushing an FBI agent at the hospital. Now, these gaudy family methods for fraud investigation have not translated well to health care, and they have no place in mainstream health care. Now, while this is arguably not a problem with the Medicare program itself, but with fraud investigations instead, it does highlight the deeply adversarial nature of the relationship in which some physicians and providers find themselves in. And this then brings me to my dog, Carolina. When the government fined the University of Pennsylvania for $30 million in one of the earliest fraud prosecutions, it argued that Penn violated its rules for resident supervision. The rules, Penn argued, and many other facilities believed, were ill-defined, and in any event, they had never been enforced before. Now, this is nothing more than dog law. When I want my dog, Carolina, to get off the new deck, the first time she hears about it is when I smack her and I say, get off the deck. Now, surely providers and beneficiaries, both, deserve the courtesy of knowing what's required of them in a dummy's guide or at least something more manageable than CCH's six-volume guide to Medicare's current rules. While I might not agree that Medicare, and I'm not sure that David has said this, but while I might not agree that Medicare is the bane of human existence, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that thousands of pages of guidance, miles of red tape, and an insane enforcement scheme is not serving the American public well. It just doesn't make any sense. My coming here today requires a special explanation. Uh, as a social insurance scholar, as someone who's debated Mike Tanner recently on the internet, as someone who wrote a hostile review of Richard Epstein's book, The Mortal, Mortal Peril, you might well wonder why I would show up at this place. It surely wasn't with the view that I was going to change the minds of a Cato audience to become social insurance advocates, enthusiasts for big government, and celebrators of Medicare. Um, so you might still ask yourself the question. And the answer is actually on the back of this book jacket. So I'll read you what I was willing to say and did so um, voluntarily and happily. Uh, I said, one need not agree with Hyman's critique of Medicare, which I don't, to see the merit of expressing pro-market criticism in easy-to-read satire. What's more, and I think more unexpected, uh, you can learn more about the relevant history of this important American program in this book's clear account of its origins, structure, and financing. You learn more about it than in scholarly tomes or the impenetrable babble 
of descriptions of Medicare's current reforms. So I concluded it's a useful volume for Medicare's backers as well as detractors. Now, before I say anything more, I want to introduce two stories that will be crucial to you getting the drift of my remarks. One is a story that goes back to the election of 1960 and has to do with the problem of every speaker dealing with any audience. That is, communicating what you say in such a way that they know what you mean. Uh, Adlai Stevenson, who lost in 52, 56, and 60, was still willing to go out on the campaign trail for, for John F. Kennedy. He gave a speech in Philadelphia, and as you recall, some of you at least uh, will recall, he was a great orator. He gave a speech. At the end of the speech, a woman of mature years came up to him and said, Governor Stevenson, that was the most stupendous, superfluous speech I've ever heard. Stevenson thought irony was the right response, so he said to the lady, well, given your enthusiasm for the speech, perhaps I should publish it posthumously. To which the poor dear said, terrific, the sooner the better. (laughs) All right, that captures the problem of communication. Now I'm going to give you a short story about the deceit of appearances, the danger of interpreting too quickly from inadequate information. And this involves the reference to Catholicism, but it has no unpleasant features uh, in that respect, or at least in my view. But the story is entitled Catholic Gasoline. Sister Mary, who was working for a home health agency, had a client she was going to visit at home. Uh, She went into the countryside uh, and sadly ran out of gas about a quarter of a mile from a gas station. She went to the gas station and said to the attendants, could I please borrow a gas can so I could get to my client? And the attendant said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, We've just given away the last gas can. Sister Mary, ever resourceful, immediately went back to the car, picked up the the bedpan that was in the trunk of her car, went back to the gasoline station, poured gasoline in the bedpan, went back to the car, started pouring gasoline in her gas tank. And two men were observing this closely at the gas station. And one said to the other, if that car starts... I'm converting to Catholicism. (laughs) All right. You know, things are not necessarily as they appear. Um, And that's really the theme of my reaction to to, um, David's book. Um, We have a history of exchanges with one another. He's one of the few, what I would call, Cato sector folks in the healthcare area. Uh, whose materials I read, and from the book I gather he reads mine as well. Um, And I want to say particularly, as a first thing, uh, that I learned a lot in this book. In particular, I learned a lot about how complicated your judgments ought to be in interpreting and evaluating the Medicare, Medicare's performance in the area of controlling fraud. Uh, This is an area that Many scholars uh, outside of the legal field do not spend much time uh, dealing with, and I think David's treatment of it, in which, as with Robin's commentary, there's a lot of concern about frightening, scaring, and angering people who don't engage in fraud but make mistakes and blurring the distinction between what's called raw fraud or clear fraud from dealing with a complex organization. I have to say by way of of, uh, parenthesis here, you know, six volumes of regulations is not what citizens see. And so it's important to distinguish the complexity providers might see from the non-complexity that, that 
uh, recipients. In fact, Medicare is remarkable in being relatively simple in its treatment of physician services and hospital services, uh, quite in contrast to the complex arrangements in many other insurance products. We don't want to blur those. But nonetheless, uh, this, it, it is undoubtedly the case that the results we now observe in which reputations are going to be made by lawyers in the Department of Justice or inspector generals or other places by going after physicians and hospitals in areas where mistake is the proper description, not intentional fraud. That's a problem because so many of the American people are misled into thinking that if all fraud were done away with and so-called abuse, Medicare would become affordable. It's, it's a completely factually silly conception, and it's an important addition to the literature. And in this way, as opposed to David's uh, law review articles, he's contributing to those who read the book uh, to a better understanding of the balance that we should be thinking between the enforcement of codes of conduct that are really important and the avoidance of stupid uh, enforcement of, of, of really foolish conceptions of what counts as fraud. So that's what I learned, uh, and to my benefit. What I found was two other things, however, <laughs> more problematic. Um, and the way I want to think about that, and depending on, on time, and you'll give me some guidance, depending on how you, I want to do I'm, I'm going to talk about two areas of problems, and then to the extent I have time, I'll take up one or another of the so-called vices, which are just a satirical device to get at an alleged problem of Medicare. The first thing I want to say more generally is that David, as with Richard Epstein, but David who knows more about Medicare than Richard Epstein uh, knows about Medicare, David, like Richard Epstein and many others, no doubt in this room and in the part of the political community that has never accepted Medicare's operational premises, confuse outcomes associated with Medicare with the guiding principles of the program. The guiding principles don't produce the outcomes, and the outcomes are important to criticize independent of the animus that put there in the first place. So let me, let me try to give you a short version of what you would say about Medicare's guiding principles of entitlement, which would get at two of the concerns that David has. One, the concerns about uh, gluttony on the part of recipients and the concerns about fiscal misery in the future. Medicare Part A is structured exactly the way its framers thought it should be structured, and precisely in ways that a libertarian would not like. That is, it's one thing to clarify the differences so that they're not ships passing in the night. The notion underneath that and underneath social insurance, disability and retirement benefits and survivor's benefits is very straightforward and simple. It says that when people are working, they ought to be putting into a pool, not necessarily Fort Knox, but a, a pool of obligation, fiscal contributions, so that, quote, they deserve, earn, or feel entitled to the treatment under those risk categories when and if they face them. So if you're disabled, or if the breadwinner dies, or if you become 65 and eligible for Medicare and have hospital bill, you are part of a nationwide pool of worker contributors. Okay? Now, I'm not interested in whether or not that's the conception of how the government ought to operate that people have. I'm just interested in being clear about it. That was the idea. And that idea defeated another set of ideas, which said that the right way that government ought to deal with people who are in trouble is deal with them after they're in trouble, not deal with them as a, as a preparatory 
activity through the act of contribution and pooling, but rather in ex post fashion. When they become poor, they become eligible for Medicare or Kermills or even any other means-tested program. Now, the rationale for that, which I just want to say a word about, the rationale of that is not a matter of people failing to use their head and do arithmetic. It's, it's perfectly obvious that if everybody who works is in the pool, high-income people are going to be in the pool. That follows from the conception of it. So any static cross-sectional claim about giving a Medicare benefit to somebody whose income is $500,000 is beside that point. It just simply reflects an alternative view of what the government ought to do, not a mistake by the program, a failure to take it into account. And the second and last point I want to make about that is that the central rationale for such an arrangement, which needs to be understood by critics and given voice to even if rejected, is that it rests on an assumption about the sources of stability of program support. It speaks to a a we-we conception, not a we-them conception of what government's for. Now, you may empirically, there's some interesting questions about whether that helps to explain Medicare's broad support or Social Security's stable support. Whether or not it does, that's what it was premised on. So let me leave it. That's my effort at clarification of areas where if they read, if people read this book and don't take that into account because it's satirical, because it uses this conceit of the seven deadly sins, they will actually not know the operational premises from which Medicare proceeded. Let me take up one more factual area where I think it's very important for, quote, the other side to see how lame the bold assertion of fiscal misery in the future is. Not how untrue it is, but how lame it is to provide it as if there's only one future. And I I, want to think about it this way. Work by Uwe Reinhardt, who's hardly a left-wing Democratic observer of these matters, suggests, and I could go through the numbers, that on reasonable assumptions about economic growth, but not infallible ones, because anybody thinks they can predict economic growth over the next 75 years, does need medical care, immediate treatment, Uh, psychiatric care, but of course I wonder about the, the quantitative capacities of that subset of physicians. What, and I could give you just the, the brief numbers. I, I'll just, not to persuade you, but just to alert you to these. Can America afford projected health spending? Can the nation afford Medicare? Is it fiscally sustainable? And the conclusion, he says, is that that if the growth of Medicare spending and the growth of GDP up to 2050 Assuming a real GDP per capita growth at 2% per year and the current increases in Medicare, you'd have a situation in which Medicare took 10% of a hugely larger pie. That's the point he's trying to make. So these judgments about the future are utterly sensitive, utterly sensitive to the relative rates of economic growth and the relative rates of, of inflation in the medical care sector. Now, let me give you this kind of counterfactual for U.S. purposes. If it were true, as David, I could use, I could give you the quotes from the book, but I like him too much to give you those. There's a cavalier use of the term, the fiscal future is miserable. If it were so obvious that a program of government health insurance under social insurance premises was unaffordable over time, with aging, the baby boom generation, coming to my generation, then 
countries that use this very form of financing of medical care that have aged as much as we will in the next three decades would have had trouble, no? That would have meant Sweden, Germany, Norway, and Finland would be in a state of unrest about how to afford their universal health insurance schemes. And it's not true. And the reason it's not true is twofold, and I'll leave it there. One is those countries are much better at controlling the budget outlays for the programs that they give entitlements to. There's some problems of that, but I'm just on the cost control. They have the capacity to deliver, even for programs guaranteed for the future. And much more importantly, unlike pensions, expenditures for medical care are a function of both price and volume of services. They don't simply function with the elderly. So it's not at all surprising that people that know how to deal with their budget forces and budget expansion know how to deal with. And if you have a social insurance scheme, very small changes on the revenue side make big differences over time because everybody's in the pool. Likewise, small changes in the rate of increase in inflation make a huge difference. Keep that in mind. So what I want, with whatever time I've got left, let me turn to at least one or two of these how can I say, these sweet uses of the seven deadly sins that, that allows David, of course, to get away with murder. Because he can say, while I'm accusing Medicare of fostering these seven deadly sins, hang on a second, Juvenal said satire was important for your laughter as well as everything else. You know, don't hold me too tight. Well, as a scholar, you'd have to say, that's really having it both ways. I mean, come on, David. That's the. Say that like it's a bad. <laughs> <laughs> having it both ways is a bad thing to get away with. A perfectly understandable sin to commit. Uh, to use but, your. But not a deadly one. But not a deadly one. Ah, yes. Now we're working on theological levels of hell. Uh, so let me take two, uh, just to to deal with one. Uh, David is concerned to tell you that doctors, hospitals, consultants, and such like have been led to avarice by the availability of this insurance program. And they engage in this questionable conduct of seeking to expand, to increase their incomes. Now, if that's a sin, this is an extremely broad sin that's being committed. So broad that it doesn't count as a sin. It doesn't count as a sin to call attention to the income wants of people. The sin is giving in to all of them, not, not having those wishes, for goodness sakes. Secondly, I have to say on, on the, a related topic, you would take from this book, and indeed some of the commentary, that Medicare is expanding wildly, left and right. It was the plan of the program I was in the government. I was working for Wilbur Cohen as the HEW undersecretary. I saw all the documents. I know that this was the operational definition of a foot in the door. On the other hand, the door hasn't opened very much, interestingly. So if your premise is that expansion takes place everywhere, you know what? This is a story of failure. Disability in the 19 and, and end-stage renal disease in 74. That's it. All right. So... What I want to say here is, if the book is read as an exaggerated tale of strains in the Medicare program, then I think it's a helpful guide. To the extent it's read by zealots as a description of the Medicare program in which these are, uh, these are accurate accounts 
of the program, it's misleading. And I'll give you one more uh, example of a misleading one. Um, well, I've given you one already, which is lust. I mean, I'm for lust, actually, rather than against it. Uh, I, I, I regard David as being mean-spirited and pinched in his uh, psychological attributes here. Uh, but all I want to say is just inaccurate here. I mean, this is not program expansion gone crazy, David. Misdescription. If lust were, were successful, if the lusty were able to get it, uh, Bob Ball would be 90-some years of age and feeling a lot better about his past. And then finally... I have to say, and maybe this is a virtue in disguise, um, I have to say in closing that this is a kind of equal opportunity satire. Uh, and so the treatment, it's not equal satire, but it's equal opportunity uh, and not equal results in the satirical portraits. But Part D of the Medicare Modernization Act comes in for a lot of criticism in this book, and I happen to share it entirely. I regard it as the worst. This must be the only area in which I could join forces with Cato and go up to the Congress and say, it is the worst piece of legislation in this area that I've, ex that I've ever come across, and it's a, a pale shadow of the thoughtfulness that went into the Medicare program in 1965, which was not very thoughtful uh, in the, at all in the way it was done. Uh, so, what do I want to say about that? What I want to say about that is that the, the vice, the so-called vice, which explains the Republican, the Republican enthusiasm for expanding Medicare's treatment of drugs, which produced a completely confusing, catastrophically complex and foolish form of benefit, was not any of the vices that David points up, but rather a constant of Washington politics and all politics namely the wish to gain an electoral advantage and to take away from the Democrats the benefits of paternal and maternal support and maternal association with Medicare. Keep that in mind as we go forward. Thank you very much. David, did you want to respond? Okay. Shortly, because I know people want to throw things at me from the audience, too. So um, let me actually start where Ted ended, um, but first of all, say I immensely, again, appreciate the comments of uh, both uh, Robin and Ted. Um, I've learned a lot from both of them, and uh, let me also start just by saying nice things about Ted's book, The Politics of Medicare, uh, which is now in its second edition, and I'm really, really hoping if you all buy one of these, there'll be a second edition of this book. Um, now, um, on lust, um, well, actually, let me start with the observation that I'm a sort of, if not equal opportunity uh, critic, at least I've got it in uh, for both sides. I think there's no question I take wax at both sides in the book. Um, and that actually was something I learned uh, from Richard Epstein, interestingly enough, who said the key is to have it in for everybody because that will keep you honest. Um, uh, and so let me just switch gears, talk about Robin a little bit, and then about Ted, uh, and then open it up more broadly. Um, I think Robin's made a number of quite interesting points about um, what would you tell your 97-year-old grandma. Um, it's important to recognize that certainly the program provides lots of services uh, to 
uh, elderly and quite elderly senior citizens, uh, and it's important that the program work well for them, but it's also important that the program work well for the broader population that happens to be footing the bill for it. And there's a tension, inevitably, in how you think about doing that, and I think that dovetails with the point about complexity. The program's complex because it's spending $340 billion a year, and when you do that, you have to write lots and lots of rules to keep people in line. Uh, and you have to have a mechanism for disciplining misbehavior. Uh, and you need to think carefully about the institutional responses that you're going to have because you've got, um, you know, uh, through really three different groups, broadly speaking. You've got people who uh, are complete innocents and do exactly what they're told or what they should have done even without being told. You've got people who basically engage, yeah, they have a foot fault. They make a mistake, but it was not deliberate. It's at worst reckless, maybe negligent. Um, and then you've got hardcore fraud, real raw fraud. Um, and no matter how you design the system, if you design it around one of those groups and ignore the other two, you're going to have difficulties of the sort uh, that Robin, I think, has mentioned. Um, and let me actually highlight, because uh, fraud is one of those things that I think the entire panel, everybody's against fraud. Okay. Um, but fraud is one of those things everybody on the panel agreed was something we need to be concerned about. I just want to mention Robin used the example of this famous University of Pennsylvania case involving uh, how well you documented uh, whether a resident was being supervised by an attending because that influenced whether you could bill once or twice for the services. Perfectly acceptable to bill twice as long as there was adequate documentation of supervision. Um, and the reason I mention it is Robin said it was a $35 million fine. That's actually not really a, a full picture of what happened. What happened was uh, the lawyers for uh, the University of Pennsylvania did a study of the billings that Penn had submitted over the time period that was being uh, reviewed. Uh, and then they came to the Board of Trustees and said, now, let's assume you've submitted a lot of bills because hospitals submit lots and lots of bills, many of them for small amounts of money. Uh, let's assume that we're successful in 97% of those bills in proving adequate documentation of supervision. I can tell you from having done litigation, you never get 97% of anything, okay? But just assume we can't, just can't meet it on 3%. If we don't have adequate documentation for only 3%, the financial exposure of the university is $285 million. So they, and at which point the only question is how many zeros do you want on the check settling this case because you can't afford to take these cases to trial. Okay, the financial exposure of the institution, you can basically just close the doors down. And the problem is when you design the rules around hardcore fraud and then you expand them more broadly, um, and, you know, there, there are all sorts of reasons for being worried about the consequences. Um, uh, Ted, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I agree with him on all sorts of the things that he said. Um, he sort of observed midway through that uh, it's important not to confuse outcomes with guiding principles. And I think that's right. On the other hand, my comeback would be outcomes can tell you something about whether your guiding principles are ones we ought to continue, okay, and whether they were good principles to begin with. Because, as and this is the point I made at the very outset, that the motives of the people at the outset of the program are just unimpeachable, deeply moralistic tone, really wanted to do the right thing. But if what they bequeathed us is a program that looks the way that it does, it's fair to ask, well, we know you meant well, but should we continue down this trajectory? Um, and I don't 
I mean, I, I'm not sure whether that requires you to, you know, take pot shots or not at different premises. It's just judging it by its outcomes. Um, in terms of uh, suggesting that there's only one future and that, you know, it's you, you can shouldn't use the forecast to criticize it because forecasts are inherently imprecise. I certainly agree forecasts are inherently imprecise. I guess my comeback would be, and this is the asymmetric argument point in the book, if the forecasts were looking good, would you tell me that you shouldn't rely on those forecasts and we ought to have a sort of open-ended discussion about the direction of the program? Um, I think the forecasts are sufficiently bad and they've been issued... Uh, by trustees under both sets of administrations for an extended period of time that we ought to be seriously concerned uh, and our ability to grow our way out of this program's problems, I think. I'm, not, I'm just not nearly that optimistic. Maybe that's because I'm not at Yale. Um, uh, and, you know, I think... That's ta- a causation explanation. That yeah, really which, which direction does that... Does that yeah. Ensuring I will never be. Yeah. No. <laughs> now you're better. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like I like cornfields. So um, I, Ted, I think makes a, you know a, a fairly standard comeback as well, which is well, if the Europeans can do it, why can't we? And I I think that there's certainly uh, you know a lot of merit in asking that question and looking carefully at their program and asking, well, how readily transferable is it? Um, and if it's so easy, why haven't we done it already is, I think, an obvious question. I think a couple of observations. One is um, they just like one another more than we do. I mean, uh, the, the sort of extent of social solidarity, uh, I think uh, the, the Europeans have simply a higher degree of that than we do. Not that there's anything good or bad about that. It's just simply a descriptive point. Um, the second is that when you do this, if you've got a centralized purchaser, it's the centralized purchaser that starts aggressively rationing care to make it affordable. Okay? We've decided we'd like a centralized purchaser for a certain population, but we won't allow it to ration care. Okay? And so, That's an important lesson to that's, learn. That's an important lesson to learn. And, I mean, I think Ted and I go in opposite directions as a result. Ted says we should ha- let them ration, and my view is we shouldn't have a centralized purchaser. Um, <laughs> And uh, I guess the last point is, you know, the Europeans do do it, but their tax rates are a lot higher and their productivity slash growth rates um, are a lot lower, and those are real costs of the system as well that you need to factor into the explanation. Um, And finally, on lust, uh, I think it's important. I'm in favor of lust, too. Um, But... Everything but fraud. Um, yeah. uh, but I think the, the book is quite clear that it's lost not just for program expansion but for political power. And so I think we're actually on the same page there. I think the Democrats have quite successfully used um, Medicare to advance their political fortunes, and they're not at all happy that the Republicans are attempting to do the same thing, which is why I make the point about switching sins. And with that, let me stop and open it up. And we'll take questions from the audience. Please wait for the microphone to reach you. And when it does reach you, uh, let us know uh, your name and your affiliation. Right there on the corner, please. Yeah, Bill, Bill Bushka, doasdotell.com. Um, I have a, que- a philosophic, sort of a philosophical question. Um, one of the things that conservatives say is that all these social programs 
relieve families the responsibility of taking care of their own people and i didn't hear much about that today but if if the government doesn't pay for the care of the elderly and then doesn't the responsibility come back on the families of the elderly and doesn't it become privatized and doesn't it play into the whole family values debate i i think this could be coming back as the birth rate is lower at least in the affluent classes and as people we can keep people living longer isn't there a threat that this whole question is going to come back with filial responsibility um, which we used to have before Medicare. In fact, that point was made in the film The Black Dahlia. <laughs> well, let me look, before we get into The Black Dahlia, let me ask if, David, you want to re- respond. I actually think that was a question for Michael. Um, I, you know, I first of all, Medicare doesn't pay 100% of the costs of care for the elderly. It, at currently, on average, and averages can be deceptive, pays about half of it. Okay, so people are coming up with a big chunk regardless. Um, secondly, you know, I think nobody, as far as I know, is talking about abolishing Medicare. All right, certainly the, the chapter on exorcism doesn't say, all right, just turn it off and move on. Okay, now, if this were really viewed as an intergenerational pyramid scheme, you would close it down tomorrow on the principle that just because you got in early doesn't mean you have any you know, right to continuation of it until you get your money out. And by the way, the people who participate in it uh, typically end up with much more than they paid in. Okay? It's the sort of combination of medical care inflation increasing, the volume of services increasing, and so on. What the book has is a list of things that we could do to change the trajectory of the program, whereas the premise of your question was you basically shut it down entirely. And I don't, I don't think anybody believes that. I think, you know, part of the question is, um, are we going to means test it completely and turn it into Medicaid? Are we going to not means test it and do some kind of premium support model? Uh, or are we going to just, you know, in, engage in what I describe in the book as price controls and prayer as a strategy for addressing it? Uh, two quick additional points. I agree with David about the political prediction that it's not going to be on the agenda for any kind of radical uh, excision, but the philosophical point is still relevant. The difference here is really the extent to which you are individualizing conceptions of risk and the degree to which you're trying to emphasize the pool quality about it. And secondly, there's a misleading implication of the often used uh, quotation of about a 55 or 50 percent on average, of medical care expenses are paid by the elderly. The reason it's misleading is the reason of all kinds of averages. Namely, if there's a if there is a tail of the distribution where most of the expenditures take place, the average destroys an understanding. The top, I, the figures are at the top of my head. In the late 1990s, the figures were roughly this: the top 10 percent of Medicare users accounted for something like 70 percent of the outlays. So it doesn't get us anywhere to think about the average expenditures. And finally, coinsurance and deductibles, all of that on the whole is not a huge problem in the Part A and Part B, but it can be a big problem in long-term care where the concerns that you have are going to come back. Third row here. Art Kellerman, uh, I'm an emergency physician from Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, One interesting wrinkle in the Medicare program, which came in after its inception, but has had a 
profound impact in healthcare in this country is the mandate that healthcare providers in emergency departments provide care to everyone in this country, irregardless of their ability to pay, even irregardless of citizenship or any other characteristic, if they present for emergency care. Uh, under the, with the understanding that if you don't want to play by that rule, you don't have to participate in Medicare. That was done for very understandable reasons and actually testified at the first congressional hearing on the need to prevent the dumping of poor patients from private hospitals to public facilities. But it has, as many instances in government, expanded to become an immense uh, unfunded mandate and really the only health care to which Americans have a legal right if you're not a federal prisoner. Do any of you have a comment on the state of that provision? And if it is working or not working, what should we do to replace it if we want to ensure that every American does have access to effective, appropriate emergency care? Well, I, that one I know is a question for David. As, as soon as you said your name, Art, I recognized the work you'd done on Imtala because I've written several articles on the subject, but I didn't mention any of them in this book. Um, nor do I mention Imtala except in the context of talking about various ancillary restraints that were the result of the program. Um, I'm not nearly as keen on Imtala as I took it from the beginning of your remarks, although I, it sounded like you were expressing some skepticism towards the end with the unfunded mandate, which is what I think it is exactly. Um, but it's worse than that because it's an unfunded mandate that has really perverse distributional consequences. Okay. It imposes the largest burdens on the hospitals that are least capable of socializing it. Okay. Um, so a hospital in the sort of Tony North suburbs of Chicago will face relatively modest burdens as a result of EMTALA since most of their patients are insured. Just so everybody knows, EMTALA, Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, that was the original acronym. And what it obligates a hospital that receives Medicare to do is anyone who shows up at the emergency department, uh, you have to screen them for a emergency medical condition and you have to stabilize them within the ability of your institution to do so. And it was an attempt to deal with various um, anecdotal horror stories and some empirical research that I've criticized at length in an article we won't talk about. Um, but the problem is the you know the Tony Hospital doesn't really face significant exposure since most of its patient pool are insured. Okay, whereas if you're running a hospital in a border town in Texas, uh, or Arizona, or California, uh, or any even in a big city where your patient pool is disproportionately uninsured or poorly insured, uh, you have tremendous burdens imposed on you and really very limited ability to socialize it and the sort of same hammer that we've heard mentioned previously that will exclude you from the program, will close you down, will impose civil monetary penalties um, if we're not satisfied. And it, uh, the, the other difficulty with it, with it is notwithstanding, I think, yeoman effort by federal judges, uh, it's become in significant respects a medical malpractice regime that ends up trying to control the quality of care delivered in emergency departments rather than simply providing access to care in those emergency departments and leaving state law to handle medical malpractice. So I, I'm, the book doesn't really talk about this except in passing, um, but I'm you know, quite skeptical about it. I think the solution here is elsewhere is if you think it's a good idea, you ought to pay for it. 
And if you're not willing to pay for it, you shouldn't be compelling people to do it because they'll find all sorts of ways to evade the obligations, including closing the hospital, closing the emergency department, decreasing the number of beds, dropping out of the trauma care network. And it's hard to view an approach that ensures that there's an open door but doesn't do anything about the size of the queue in front of the door and actually shrinks the size of the door as a, a sensible solution to the problems that hospitals face and that people without insurance face in getting access to care. An interesting um, footnote on the unfunded uh, mandate aspect of EMTALA is that yesterday, I think it was, the Chicago Tribune reported that a program that Congress had created, setting aside $1 billion for hospitals to uh, to compensate them for the cost of care uh, incurred by illegal immigrants, has gone mostly unclaimed. I think about 15% of that money, uh, the, the money that's available, has been claimed so far. And the reason is that Congress uh, put so many strings on that money that the hospitals don't even want it. So, um, question in, on the aisle? Unless, Professor Marmer, you want to add Just two something? quick responses to your question. The part of your question interested me was whether or not this was the right way to think about universal coverage. And the short answer is no. This is an example of, of a big problem, but not a remedy that makes any sense whatsoever. But for the problem you identified, not that one, um, it, there's an obvious direction of change. If people vary in the degree to which they are under EMTALA providing free care, it ought to be redistributed back to them. There ought to be a pool exactly which would take from from all of those expenditures and allocate it back to the people who give the service. So it's not a conceptually big matter. It's a problem of political pathology, not a problem of institutional design. I'm Catherine Sirks, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Um, I, too, support LUST. Uh, but not as a government mandate at taxpayers' expense. Um, and I have a legal question rather than a policy question. I'm going to take about 30 seconds to, to preface the question, if you bear with me. Um, Professor Wilson said that people want to know that someone out there is working hard for us. Um, I, th- I, would, I would propose that it's physicians who are the ones who are out there working hard for it rather than their Medicare carrier administrator. Um, so that the, the program always comes back to physicians and that we cannot underest- really cannot underestimate the amount of fear and intimidation that you've, that you've touched on in the, on this fraud factor. In fact, it's our study shows that 25% of physicians um, are, are limiting services or not accepting. It's not about money. It's about the, the hassle factor, if you will, despite what the AMA is trying to say. And that it actually does take a brain surgeon to figure this out, and the brain surgeons can't figure it out. That's part of the problem. So what I'm getting to is that we talk about the, this coercion factor, and that's where my legal question's coming in. I think Professor Marmon would have us believe it's like the old ads for the used car salesman. It's like, we're losing money on every car. How can we stay in business? We make it up with volume. That's what, that's what doctors have been led to believe. Just keep taking more patients even though you're losing money on them. So we get to the coercion factor. My legal question is, we've set up a, a, a con- contractual relationship unlike anything in the private sector, and that is that a patient makes a contract with the federal government, the Medicare carrier, to, to have them provide their, the, them as their insurance carrier. And yet the physician 
who might not want to be non-participating, which means nothing these days, may not want to have anything to do with it. How have we gotten the situation? And, is, and my question is, I'm examining, is it actually constitutional or legal to insist that the patient's relationship with the government and the Medicare carrier be enforced upon the physician? Why can't phys- patients go see any doctors they want, and then the patient files the claim for the reimbursement like we do like we have in the private sector. Are you tracking what I'm at with? What we've done is we've enforced doctors have, have to play by the Medicare rules because of the patient's contract with Medicare. Well, it, um, it seems that one solution is the doctor doesn't have to contract with patients who are on Medicare. So the doctor has one... Yeah, the, there, there is a sort of, and the book touches on this briefly, there's an all-or-nothing problem, right, which is you either see all Medicare patients um, that you're willing to accept uh, and accept the terms that Medicare imposes for all of those patients, or you privately contract uh, and basically don't see anyone else that Medicare is willing to pay for. And, uh, you know, partly this is... uh, you know, the, there's a complex statutory history here. Part of it was a concern about exploitation um, that uh, physicians would say to Medicare patients, uh, I'd be happy to see you, but Medicare only pays me X dollars, and I want Y additional sum to see you. Um, partly it's an attempt by the purchaser of services to ex- ensure that it can exploit its market power to the extent that it has any uh, and not allow a sort of unbundling of the risk pool. Um, you know, the, the difficulty and, the, you know, the way to think about this is, well, how does the private market handle this? Um, and does it vary systematically? And I actually don't know enough about the answer to that, but I would want to know the answer to that before I would have any strong views on is this a real problem, independent of the fact that, you know, a big chunk of the population of people who receive health care services are covered by Medicare. I would add to that, too, having looked a little bit at the private contracting and the history of it, that there was sort of a third rationale, which was the concern that you would, after the fact, in effect, have two systems that emerged, and you'd have a two-tier Medicare system, and that was explicitly rejected. Um, And so David's right. It is this all-or-nothing proposition. Um, There were some early challenges, as I recall, uh, by physicians saying that – in effect, this all-or-nothing proposition uh, would be a taking, that, you know, you're not allowing me, you're, you're, you're interfering with uh, my rights in this instance, and they've just never gone anywhere. It was viewed as a spending power issue, right. essentially. When you're spending money, you can attach pretty much whatever conditions you want to it, unless there's an express constitutional prohibition that you'd run afoul of. Could I just add one, one further point? First of all, there was a, it was available in Medicare at the very beginning. It was called direct billing uh, versus assignment billing. So keep that historical point. It had everything to do with the difficulty of, of, of telling people what they were insured for because there was an open-ended scheme on the other end. They wouldn't know what their insurance. But I think what, what's odd about your formulation of the question is you're holding out the view that private insurance is some nirvana for American doctors, and that's got nothing to do with the facts. I mean, the most aggressive selective contracting has been outside. So, I mean, if you're going to be, we should be equal opportunity haters, it seems to me. Uh, and if you're going to be angry, actually be accurate. 
it is a, this is a caricature to think that the threats to American physicians' capacity to have autonomy is coming from Medicare. My God, it may be complex, but it in fact is a huge degree of choice compared to what's available. Other than that, it was fine. <laughs> Look, can I add to that, too? I, I talked to my family physician who's 31 years old. Um, getting ready for David's talk and just sort of telling him about the book when I was seeing him. And, you know, he said... buy one. He can buy one, right? I'm sure I said that somewhere. Um, But, uh, you know, what what he said is, you know, I I, I don't want to practice medicine. And I said, why not? That's what you love. And he goes, yeah, but it's not what I do. And I said, well, help me with my talk. Um, What, what, you know, where are these concerns coming from? And when we started talking about private insurers versus Medicare, the only person he really did, our only party he really did like, was Medicare, because they were giving much more generous reimbursement. I think the real problem with Medicare is just that what I see some of the fraud prosecutions are as a take-back. And what I mean by that is there's not sufficient notice about what kinds of things are going to get you in deep, deep hot water. Um, and then when, um, you know, Operation Restore Trust or one of these fraud prosecutions come down the pike, and they always have these sort of military-sounding names, um, but when they come down the pike, there's basically a letter from some great, great big calculations sent to, you know, small hospitals, small facilities, providers, uh, where they say, you owe us, blah, 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 fill in the blank. And it's a strike suit. There's basically no value in trying to um, to dispute that. And uh, it's essentially what happened at the University of South Carolina when I was teaching there. The law school every year after the first year I was there basically had a take back from the university where the university said, well, we're not making enough money today, so we're going to take some back. Um, and it seemed always invariably to come out of the law school. And there's something profoundly unfair about that. We had a question on that room. Yes, I'm Jim Cantwell with the Joint Economic Committee. Uh, Professor Marmer touched on the sustainability of Medicare, and I'd just like to suggest that that whether or not Medicare is sustainable in the long run cannot be answered by looking just at Medicare. You need to look at the other mandatory programs as well. You need to look at uh, Medicaid. You need to look at Social Security. You also need to keep your eye on what's happening to net interest, and the picture is not pretty there either. Was that a question or just an additional observation? Um, It's absolutely correct that the long-term fiscal future of any program is tied up with the context of government revenues and expenditures, and that seems to be unambiguously true and important to make. But that doesn't give you a handle on Medicare either. Uh, And I would say the the most important thing to remember uh, is that the fiscal future that we look at in 2006 looks very different than the fiscal future we're looking at just six years ago or so. So decisions now uh, on other programs make a big difference. They, my point, and this goes to David, if I could just get a word in on the forecasting side. The fact that there are alternative futures that depend on political economic circumstances distant in the future is an argument against point predictions. It's not an argument against thinking about the future. Uh, what it what it suggests is that for the facts that you alluded to, which I agree with, that unless we assume that to sustain the programs we have domestically, let alone our foreign adventures, we're going to have to pay more taxes into government, we have to face that fact, either that or cut back on these programs. It's not because the programs have somehow gone crazy, and that's why I want to suggest anybody who thinks 
that American medicine is a model in the private sector for prudence and cost control doesn't know what they're talking about. Coming to America to discover well, how to do cost control is like going to a brothel to find out about chastity. I mean, it just – and th- this craziness of thinking about Medicare alone, Medicare is embedded in American medical care. We've had, we've had for years, decades, an unwillingness and incapacity to wrestle with the cost of American medicine more generally. Um, and if, for example, you're terribly fearful about Social Security, as you may well be, well, then I urge that you engage in some operational discussion of options of what kind of adjustments of benefits, lowering of benefits, would be required. Would they be draconian? And the answer is no. What we have to, what we need is a kind of truth-telling, which is where David and I agree. Small change, that's the point about social insurance. Very small changes on the revenue side make a difference for affordability, and very small changes on the benefit side make the affordability easier. And that's the, the straight talk that should be going on rather than generalized fearfulness about a future if you put a straight-line ruler to any of these programs. Now, uh, we've run over, so I'm going to let David have the last word if he wants to respond to that. Otherwise, uh, I think that all of our uh, speakers here will be available for further questions upstairs in the Winter Garden. Uh, I hope you'll join us for lunch. And I want to thank each of our speakers uh, for coming to join us today.